Good morning, church. Uh, I'm going to have to ask you to bear with me today. I'm fighting a respiratory thing. So if my voice suddenly gives out, uh, that's not the judgment of God on me. That just is my body kind of being behind the weather today. So, uh, but I'm excited to jump into John chapter three as we continue looking at the life of Jesus and who he is and what he came to do. But I want to start this morning by describing what I think is one of the more disorienting phenomenons in life. Maybe you've been at a public event, a work event, or a wedding, and somebody comes up to you and they start talking to you as if they know you. Have you had this experience? And you're racking your brain and you think, man, for the life of me, I cannot place this person. And it's disorienting because what happens in that moment is you have no sort of context to place their identity, why you know them, uh, where they come from. And, and for good or bad, someone's identity influences how we interact with them in, in both sort of judgmental ways that aren't healthy, but also in good ways. You wouldn't interact with your children the same way you would with your boss or your spouse the same way you would with your boss because they have different identities and there's different contextual uh, relationships there. So someone's identity really matters. And if you're like me in that situation, I'm usually nudging my wife saying, hey, will you introduce yourself so that I can at least get this person's name, right? And then begin to have a context for what this looks like. Well, I want to give you a couple other uh, examples of uh, mistaken identity. So take a look at these. Uh, These guys are at a, I don't know what the Steel City Convention is, but they say, just met Bill Murray, be jealous. Uh, That's not Bill Murray. If, if you uh, sort of squint, it kind of looks like Bill Murray, maybe. Uh, it's just some dude who was also at the convention. I bet it made his day that they wanted a picture. But if they didn't think he was Bill Murray, they never would have got his picture. But because of what they thought of his identity, then they wanted a picture. Go to the next one. This lady is super excited. She said, we just saw Matt Damon. Uh, this is, in fact, Mark Wahlberg, uh, not Matt Damon. I think it's super gracious of him that he still took the picture. Um, And I think if you scroll down through her conversation later, she says, he didn't even correct me. What a a nice guy. All right, one more. Uh, This was a poster from a restaurant overseas. They were really excited that Tom Cruise came to eat their meal. Uh, This is like budget Tom Cruise. Uh, Again, sort of looks like him. Not really. Um, I have one final example. This one's a video. And as I set up the context for this, uh, what you need to know is the man in this video, his name is Guy Goma. Now, Guy Goma had applied for a job at the British Broadcasting Company, and he shows up on the day of his interview, and they mistake him with a man by the name of Guy Cuny. Now, Guy Cuny is an expert on online digital content and copyright law for online digital content. So when Guy Goma shows up to reception at BBC, they mistake him for this expert in online digital content, and they mistakenly put him on live TV to have an interview. And I want you to just watch his body language. Look how uncomfortable he is. Uh, just take a look at this. At first, it's like he can't believe he's there, right? And then he realizes, I don't think I'm supposed to be here. So what does this all mean for the industry and the growth of music online? Well, Guy Cuny is the editor of the technology website uh, News Wireless. (laughs) Hello, good morning to you. Good morning. Were you surprised by this uh, verdict today? I'm very surprised to see this verdict to to come on me because I was not expecting that. 
When I came, uh, they told me something else, and I'm coming. You got an interview there, so it's a big surprise anyway. It's very much indeed. I think we can uh, now also speak to uh, I mean, to his credit, I think he did way better than I would have in that scenario. He just goes with it and answered a couple questions. I was a little sad that he didn't get the job. Uh, I felt like after that, they could have at least offered him some kind of role. But the reason he was in that position was because they didn't have a clear sense of who he was. They mistook his identity for someone else. And so as we jump into John chapter 3, I want you to have this idea of mistaken identity in your head. Because what happens in John chapter 3 is that John pushes us to wrestle with some fundamental questions about who is Jesus and what did he come to do. And I'm going to have Ben read that text for us. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everything born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Thanks, Ben. So Nicodemus, what do, what do we know about him? Right away in the first couple of verses, it tells us that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Uh, as a Pharisee, this means that he would be incredibly well-versed in the law. He would know the Jewish law forwards and backwards. Uh, we know that he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. This is the Sanhedrin. So this would be a group of 70 men who represent the highest echelons of, of influence and power in the Jewish culture. And so this is a man who should by all means understand spiritual things. He is a spiritually learned man. In fact, Jesus will later say, you're Israel's teacher, but you, you don't understand the things that I'm telling you. And right away, there's some interesting things about the way Nicodemus comes to Jesus. We're told that he comes to Jesus at night. Now, some people have suggested that perhaps he comes to Jesus at night because he wants to hide his identity. He doesn't want people around to think, oh, Nicodemus is talking to Jesus. Perhaps he's a supporter. But what's interesting is, 
Excuse me. Okay, I'm good. Uh, what's interesting is, uh, as, as he has this conversation with Jesus, I kind of forgot where I was going there. Let me go back to the text. I'm all hyped up on Dayquil, so I feel like that stuff messes with your head. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Member of the Jewish ruling council, he should get this. Um, he comes at night. Uh, but you'll notice that he says, uh, we. And, and it's likely then that Nicodemus comes from a sort of collective of people who want to know more about Jesus. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. So who's this we? Likely it's the Sanhedrin that he's come to represent. But it's interesting that he comes at night. Now, coming at night, uh, the theme of darkness and light has significant uh, meaning in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, uh, it talks about Jesus, who's the light of life, has come into the world, but the darkness didn't understand it. In John chapter 3, at the end of uh, 16 to 21, it will talk about Jesus being the light. Light has come into the world, but people have loved darkness instead. So I think there's something metaphorical going on here where Nicodemus comes to Jesus in spiritual darkness. This is a man who he has all the knowledge. This is a man who should get it. He should understand. And yet he doesn't. And I think like Nicodemus, we live in a culture that walks in spiritual darkness. We live in a culture who fundamentally misunderstands who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And that question of what is Jesus' identity is of the most fundamental importance. Now, Nicodemus will say, Rabbi, we know that you're a great teacher because of the miraculous signs that you're doing, and no one could do these things if they were not from God. Now, Nicodemus assumes that Jesus is just a great teacher. He, he's this great rabbi. People are following him. He clearly has power, but Nicodemus knows just enough to miss the entire point. Because as Jesus continues teaching in this passage, he'll say, Nicodemus, it's not just that I'm a great teacher. He says, in fact, in verse 16, I am the very son of God. And I think our culture would be okay with saying Jesus is a great moral teacher. Our culture can go that far. It seems like he's a man of wisdom. It seems like Jesus has a lot to say and a lot to offer. But as soon as we talk about Jesus being the only way, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That's from Acts. As soon as we start making those claims, our culture backs off a little bit. Surely Jesus can't be the only way. Surely there must be other ways. And so that question of Jesus' identity is one that I want us to wrestle with this morning. He's not just a great teacher. Jesus is so much more than this. And so what we see is as John offers his, um, his sort of commentary on what's happening here, verse, chapter 3, verse 16, he says this. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You know, we, a lot of us have this passage, maybe you have it memorized, maybe you've at least seen it held up on a poster board at a baseball game or a football game. We're at least familiar with this. But have you stopped to think about the profound nature of what's being said here? That Jesus is the very son of God. This is God in the flesh. And, and he'll later talk about how uh, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but Jesus brings salvation. And so we, what we see in John's teaching about what Jesus has just said is that Jesus is the very son of God and that Jesus is the savior and the Messiah. He's the one that the, the people of Israel have been waiting for and yearning for, the one who will lead them to freedom, who will usher in a time of God's kingdom. 
No, did you notice uh, Jesus uses this interesting passage in verse 14? He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. What's he talking about? He's using an image that Nicodemus, as a learned uh, man of Israel, would have been familiar with. In Numbers chapter 21, there's this place where the people of Israel have been grumbling and complaining and crying out against God. And I'm so glad I'm way more mature than they are because I never grumble or complain or argue against God, only weekly, right? So the people of Israel, they're frustrated. They're crying out to God in Numbers 21. And so what God does is he allows venomous snakes to come among the camp of Israel. And it says many people are bitten and died. And finally, God tells Moses, he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a snake, put it up on a pole, set it up in the middle of camp, and whoever looks at that will be saved from the venom. They won't die. And so he uses this illusion to the Old Testament that Nicodemus should have very well understood. He says, Nicodemus, just as the people of Israel looked to that snake and were no longer subject to the venom of their bite, he says, Nicodemus, in the same way, the Son of Man, Jesus, will be lifted up on the cross, and whoever looks to him will be freed from the venom and sting and brokenness and woundedness of sin. Now, as we backtrack through this passage, you'll see that Nicodemus still doesn't totally understand this because he, he doesn't get this fundamental question of who is Jesus. Because Jesus as the son of God, Jesus as the savior and Messiah, he does two key things. Number one is that Jesus reveals God's heart and purpose for his people. Do you wanna know what God is like? Look no further than the life of Jesus. Because in Jesus, he reveals the character of God the Father. And I think sometimes we have this image of God that he's angry or disappointed or that God is sort of this grumpy person in the sky looking down on us, waiting to be disappointed. But notice what Jesus says in verse 17 or what John says. He says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Through Jesus, God is not bringing condemnation. God is revealing his heart and purpose for his people. Do you fundamentally believe this morning that God is for you, that God desires your best, that God wants you to walk with him. Think about this. This is mind-blowing to me, that the God of all creation saw the separation that sin caused in our rebellion, and he sent his son to die for us that we could have that relationship restored, that God wanted a relationship with you so bad that he would not withhold the very life of his son. So Jesus doesn't bring condemnation. We stand condemned already if we don't believe in him. Think about it this way. Jump back in time with me. Let's say you purchased a ticket uh, on the Titanic and you're, you're on this maiden voyage and somebody comes running up to you. You're on the sun deck sitting in your lounge chair and somebody comes running up to you and they said, hey, we hit an iceberg, we're going down. And you proceed to look at that person and you say, I, I just don't know if I really believe that. Um, that might be your truth. That's not my truth. So I'm going to sit in my sun chair and just enjoy the deck, right? Regardless of what that person believes, it doesn't change the fact that the ship is going down is true, right? And this is what Jesus says. Whoever doesn't believe stands condemned already. It doesn't matter if you believe that Jesus is the son of God or not. What he is and what he came to do is fundamentally true. And it's not that Jesus brought condemnation. It's that he brings salvation and forgiveness. And when we open our lives in belief to him, he invites us into this beautiful relationship. But for some of us, we can't get past this idea that in life, apart from Jesus, that we're sinking into sin and brokenness and woundedness and spiritual darkness. But in Jesus, he reveals the heart 
and the purpose of God for his people. No, the second thing that Jesus does is he brings new birth resulting in new life free from sin and death. And, and this is his, his conversation with Nicodemus. And this is where their conversation gets interesting, right? So in chapter three, verse two, he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God for no one could do the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Now we would expect Jesus to say, Nicodemus, you don't get it. Here's who I am. But you forget that these are two theologians, two learned teachers who are engaging. And so Jesus changes the conversation and he says this. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Now, there's a couple interesting things here. That phrase born again, the, the Greek word that's used there can have two senses to it. It can mean to be born from above, meaning that God does a work in you, or it can mean to be born again. And so there's this funny play on words that's happening in the original language that we don't see here. But Jesus tells Nicodemus, he says, Nicodemus, you can't even begin to understand what God is doing if you are not born from above, if God does not do a new work in your heart to change and transform who you are. You see, Nicodemus has lots of information. He knows the Jewish tradition. He knows the law. He knows the scriptures. He has it cognitively, but his heart hasn't been reborn and remade. And so what Jesus is telling him is he says, Nicodemus, you can never see the kingdom of God, this plan that God is unfolding, unless he first does a work in your heart. He says, you need to be born from above. Now, Nicodemus, being the super intelligent man that he is, he pushes into this and he says, how can someone be born again when they're old? And he asks this question in a sort of a, a crass way. He says, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And he goes right back to this physical birth. He says, by born again, like, this isn't possible because clearly I cannot crawl back into my mother's womb to have a physical birth a second time. And he knows full well that this is not what Jesus is talking about. He's trying to provoke this conversation. So Jesus says in verse five, very truly I tell you, no one can enter. Now notice how this progresses. In verse three, he said, no one can see. Now no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. And Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh. In other words, Nicodemus, you've had a physical birth. I'm not talking about being reborn physically. He says, you need to be born again from above in the water and the spirit. No, this idea of being born of water and spirit, he's not talking about physical versus spiritual. That's what he talks about with flesh gives birth to flesh. When Jesus talks about you must be born from above with both water and the spirit, water is symbolic of baptism. What Jesus tells him is, Nicodemus, you need to be washed clean. You need to be purified in this work that God does in your heart and life. And you need to be born again and live a life of repentance. This is the core of what baptism symbolizes. It symbolizes a life of repentance. <coughs> in which we leave behind who we used to be and we step fully into who God is calling us to be. So as Jesus reveals God's heart and purpose for his people, as he brings new birth resulting in a new life free from sin, there's this fundamental question of what does this mean tangibly for us? And I've already talked about this idea of repentance, and it's this idea of you are not stuck in who you used to be, that God can do a work of transformation and redemption, that you can be made new, that the, the, the woundings and the traumas and the difficulties that you have experienced in your life and family can be reborn and made new, and God can bring redemption and healing to all things. I love this idea that as we turn from who we used to be, in, in 
In Hebrew, the, the Hebrew word for repentance is teshuva, and it literally means to turn or to return. And in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it carries with it this idea of coming home. So when Jesus talks about the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus teaches in Aramaic and Greek, but he's alluding to this idea that repentance is about coming home to the arms of the Father and experiencing a restoration of our identity. Because this life of repentance... <coughs> leads to new life in the spirit, which leads to a restoration of our identity as children of God. See, what I want us to wrestle with this morning is not only do we misunderstand Jesus' identity, I think we fundamentally misunderstand our identity. That the God of all creation sent his son to die on the cross for us to bring the rest of his family home in relationship with him that we are sons and daughters of God. I love how 1 John says this, behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the sons and daughters of God. And that is what we are. And I love the way in 1 John, that John affirms this. And that is what you are. You are a child of God. And when we get that sense of our identity right, when that is born again from above, it changes everything about us. And what we see is that this is so much more than knowledge. It's heart transformation. Walking with Jesus is not about how much Bible trivia we know. It's about who we're becoming in the Spirit. Now, notice how Jesus enters, or, uh, ends this passage, verse 8. He says, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And what Jesus is saying, he says, You can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. So think about a, a typical South Dakota day where there's a light breeze at 25 or 30 miles an hour. And you can see the trees bent over, swaying in that gentle breeze for us. You can't physically see the wind, but you see the impact that the wind is having on the landscape around it. Jesus says, listen, it's this same way when you are born again from above by the Spirit. He says, you can't see the Spirit tangibly, but what you can see is the impact that the Spirit has on your life. What you can see is a new way of living and being in the world, a life that looks totally and fundamentally different. So what does this new life in the spirit look like? I think there's two key places where you see this fleshed out in the scriptures. The first is Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. There we read this. It says, I will, this is God speaking to Israel. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean, right? Again, there's the symbolism uh, that later Christian believers would attribute to baptism, Right? And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. That God can wash you away. That he can make you new. You can be born again from above. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Have you ever thought about that life apart from Jesus? We have a heart of stone in which we're not able to love as fully and as capably as God would desire us to. But when we open up our life, to belief in God, and he sends his spirit through the Son to do a new work in us. We are changed people. And God removes a heart that's calloused, and he gives us a heart of flesh, a heart that has been spiritually born from above and is able to respond to the work and the movement of God. In verse 27 of Ezekiel 36, it says this, and it says, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That to me is one of the most encouraging things. That God did not give us the word and say, here's righteous living. Here's what it looks like to walk with me and then say, good luck. 
That's, that's pretty discouraging. I mean, there's a lot that I still don't understand in here. There's things that I think God has called me to that I still kind of balk at. So God did not just give us his word and say, good luck, go do it on your own power. No, in Ezekiel 36, God says, I will place my spirit in you and my spirit will move you to keep my decrees. So in Jesus, we're not given a new law. We're given a new way of living in the son and the power of the spirit. Where the spirit of God resides in us and he begins to change the very things that we desire he begins to give us new impulses in a new direction. And he encourages us to keep the word and the law of God. Secondly, what does this new life in the spirit look like? Paul describes <laughs> Paul describes this well in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. He says this. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit, the effect of what the Spirit does in your life, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It says, against such things, there is no law. So when you see the effect of the wind, when the breeze of the Spirit is flowing in your life, it looks like a life reoriented towards joy and love and hope and peace and patience and kindness. And when we live that out by the power of the Spirit, we, becoming, we become a transforming and redeeming agent in the world around us. And people begin to ask things like, how can you be kind to your boss who undercuts you at every, every opportunity they get? How can you be patient with that family member that consistently is difficult for you to build a relationship with? And it's the power of the Spirit that moves us to live and to work differently. So if I were going to summarize this, here's what I want you to take today, is that a life of faith in Jesus is more than knowing about him. It's relationally knowing and walking with him and being made new. See, Nicodemus, he had all the knowledge. I love how Jesus again points this out. He says, you're Israel's teacher, but you don't understand this fundamental idea that God has to do something new in your heart. Nicodemus knows the law. He knows the Jewish traditions. He knows a ton about God. But he hasn't opened up his heart and allowed it to be changed and transformed and redeemed. And maybe you've been in the church a long time. And you know a ton of Bible trivia. Let me ask you this question. Is the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, is that evidenced in your life? Would people be quick to say about you, oh, oh, that person? Oh, yeah, they're, they're patient and kind and loving. Listen, if we're not seeing the evidence of the fruit in our, of the Spirit in our life, we have to ask how the condition of our heart is. How is the condition of your soul? Because if we are walking with Jesus, we should see this evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in us. I mean, we talked about mistaken identity. Those guys in that first picture, they could say they met Bill Murray, and they could say, oh, yeah, we had a conversation when we learned a lot about him. First of all, they didn't meet who they think they did. And secondly, knowing about him does not mean that they know him. Listen, the God of all creation is inviting you into something new and radically different. And I pray this morning that we would open up our lives, that we would look to Jesus who's been lifted up, who died on the cross for us, that we can experience life made new.
So three ways that we can respond this morning. The first is maybe you simply need to respond to Jesus' invitation to walk in faith with him. You just have never said, Jesus, I want to I know you. Not know about you. I want to know you, Jesus. I pray that this morning would be a day where you say, Jesus, I open up my heart to you. Change me, transform me, make me new from above. Secondly, maybe you need to recommit to leaving behind your old life and living into a new life of faith. Maybe you came to know Jesus and you walked away from who you used to be, but you've been pulled back in that direction. And maybe God is beginning to nudge you and say, hey, you're going back to who you used to be. Live into the new life of faith that I've created you to have. And so maybe you need to recommit to that. And some of you, maybe we just need to reflect on and praise God for who you're becoming in Christ. Don't let John 3.16 just become a normal verse that we know and move past. That God so loved you. Not as a, a faceless person in a mass, but God sees you individually and uniquely and he loves you and he gave his son for you that you can be made new and born again from above. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the truth of your word that we can be born from above and made new. That there's no sin that we're so rooted with. There's no situation that you can't redeem. God, we know that you can redeem all things. So God, this morning I pray for those who are walking through a difficult situation. Maybe it seems impossible for redemption to be known. God, would you renew and transform and redeem those situations? God, maybe there's people who've, they've known about you for a long time. They know a lot of Bible trivia, but they haven't really walked relationally in connection with you. God, I pray this morning would be a moment of full surrender to you, Jesus. Would we truly know what it is to be born again by your spirit and set free? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.